Today's scripture reading is from Acts 6, 1 through 7, and that is on page 914 if you're using the Bible in the pew in front of you. Once again, that is Acts 6, 1 through 7. Wait till I finish hearing the pages turn. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, And they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, John. And thanks, Holly and Catherine and Eric and Brett. All those that serve... In so many ways, and those are just some that you that you see. I, I think you were greeted as you came in this morning. I'm assuming the door was open for you. Now, there might have even been coffee available. Uh, you can hear my voice now, probably more clearly, because someone is adjusting and tweaking a sound system. Uh, there may be scriptures behind me because someone is actively participating and trying to present the word to you in that form. It's quieter in the room because we have teachers and caregivers ministering to students and young people. And more and more goes into the preparation ultimately to commune with God. I should mention there's a communion meal set. I don't think I've had to speak a reminder about a communion meal for eight years. And there's a team in place to prepare us to commune with God in all of these ways. And this is just one of the gatherings of the church. I did a quick tabulation this morning. I I think we're somewhere, it takes somewhere around 30 to 35 of you in some way as we gather every Sunday, serving and working according to various gifting. So thank you. For those that are somewhat in the front and so those that are, that are behind the scenes, this is what makes a body. And so thank you who serve. And certainly as we hear this passage, as you see the title, it seems appropriate to give thanks to all of you who serve, knowing I can't even name by name or that list is going to be a lot longer than the one we just heard read. The church in Acts is a model church. Martin Lloyd-Jones called it the genuine church, but it's not the perfect church. And we continue to see some issues within the church. And as we like to say here, if you're looking for the perfect church, if you're new to our body and this is your first time or second time and you're looking for the perfect church, then we would say keep looking. We're not it. And even with a model church before us, knowing there were issues Challenges, even divisions and problems uh, can be discouraging, but also could be hopeful that we are not all that different. So if you're looking for the perfect church, you can keep looking, but because we're not the perfect church, we think you actually might fit right in. The church in Acts has been growing and multiplying at least four times now by a quick count, quick scan. I see Luke has indicated this miraculous growth in number, the way the gospel is spreading, as Jesus said it would. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and that's what we've been seeing for these 
first five chapters, now moving into the sixth chapter. The, Acts, Act, the book of Acts, the letter of Acts, kind of follows that Acts 1-8 commissioned by Jesus. The word of God will be spread from Jerusalem to Judea, tried to combine Judea and Samaria there, Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see, we see that exactly happening. In these first chapters, the word spreads in Jerusalem, and then there starts to, this persecution actually drives the apostles and the early church, the disciples, out into the region around Jerusalem, which is Judea, into Samaria, and we'll see that, that ministry powerfully through Stephen, who's presented to us here in just a, a chapter or two, and then to the ends of the earth. Really, the remaining part of, of uh, the second half of Acts is to the ends of the earth, uh, primarily through Paul's ministry and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark, those who go out to the ends of the earth. So there's kind of a, a framework there set in motion by none other than Jesus. How about that? So four times we see Luke speaking to this growing and multiplying of the church. And here again in Acts 6 verse 1, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, kind of bookends this section as we heard, uh, the, the word of God continued to flourish, to multiply. Healthy things grow and multiply. It's one of our core convictions. We looked at it specifically a couple weeks ago. Well, here isn't one of our core convictions, but a truth nonetheless. Church growth causes problems. A complaint by the Hellenists arose amongst the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You know, perhaps a better way to phrase that statement is church growth causes pressure. The problems were already there. The underlying issues surface as church growth and change kind of ratchets up that pressure. And when a church grows and changes, there will always be some who say or feel, I liked it how it used to be. My, my, what are they saying or what are we f- feeling? I think we've all probably been there or we would at least know people like this who attend other churches. We're saying my needs were being met. I, I, I was good. I was comfortable. Now my needs aren't being met quite the same way. Deacon Parmenas, no, 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 no. Pastor Peter, he, he used to visit me. We see the problems that were there resulted in these complaints, maybe not unjustified. There could have been an actual issue taking place, but it really could have been anything. The church growth simply brought the pressure to bring out the underlying issues, which are always rooted in sin and selfishness, which is within us all. Sometimes it's vocalized. And so this is what's taking place. What, just speaking to the issue, it seems fairly clear, but we weren't there, and so we, there is some speculation. Uh, the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, were coming back to Jerusalem. If you read the story of the Old Testament, there's a lot of dispersion that takes place amongst God's people, primarily at the hands of oppressing nations and empires like Persia, Assyria, Babylon. And over those centuries, as other powers came in and would take control or dominate the land, exiles were taken out of it. Many of the Jewish people were taken into exile, some to return, and that cycle continues as God's plan of salvation moves forward toward Jesus. So these exiles, those dispersed, the diaspora, all the Jews living outside of Jerusalem and Judea, they'd been living outside many for centuries. Now some were taken into exile, others fled for refuge of a safer place, but for centuries they're living outside of Jerusalem, growing up now in a Greek-dominated world, learning Greek. Very few learned Hebrew anymore. If you lived in Jerusalem, likely you were speaking Aramaic, but you are also taught Hebrew in order to hear and understand the Torah. And many 
would speak both, even if the common language was Aramaic. So what we have here is the Hellenists coming back to Jerusalem now that it's a relatively safer, more neutral time, though there's still oppression, and they're, they're living in the city again or in the region again. But there was enough of them that only spoke Greek that they needed their own synagogue, as is mentioned here in this passage. They'd had the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That had been around for a, a couple hundred years now. So that's all they needed. So there's, there's this division that happens around language. And we know language and culture and then therefore traditions can create that division. It should be distinction, not division. But there seems to be this division, if not preference, that is taking place. Those that lived in Jerusalem may have felt, well, we're the true Israel. We're the survivors. We speak Hebrew. We're the true keepers of the the temple. We use the original Torah, not some translation. We, We have the extra special version, not the nearly inspired version, as if there could ever... See, we have to speculate ultimately on what some of the division was here, but it's not hard to speculate. Once we start to think about language differences, cultural differences, ways of tradition, styles of worship, we can speculate quite easily. Now the problem may have been a real issue. There may have truly been this division, separation, discrimination, and even the neglecting of these two groups of widows. Though that speculation, what's not speculation, is in those days there was no governmental assistance programs. And if you were a widow, you often had nothing. And so the church took upon themselves, both as a responsibility according to God's word, but also a privilege to serve all in need, We see that model clearly in these chapters, but especially the widows, the orphans, the fatherless, these most neglected or marginalized in their day. And so they take it upon themselves, and it seems that that was going well, and we should honor the church for the way that they gave and served, the way that mercy ministry was at play. May we do the same. It's not without issues, especially as growth happens as many thousands now are coming into the church. And if there's a distribution of provisions, it will attract more and more people who are in need. So they were ministering well, but this complaint arose and apparently there was some division or some neglecting of faithful, careful service. So how did the early church leaders respond? Notice what they didn't do. They didn't ignore the problem. We're doing the best we can. Look, it's not really that big of an issue. There's so many other issues to address. They didn't ignore it. They didn't work harder. I'm sorry, honey, I'm going to be out another night of the week. But that's, but that's five nights a week. I know, but there's more ministry to do. There's always more ministry to do. They didn't, the leaders didn't work harder. They didn't preach a bunch of guilt-heavy sermons and then pass the plate and the clipboard. All right, if you don't step up and serve those in need, look at at what God's Word says. You're in danger of the fires of hell. Are you even a true believer? They didn't do that. They administrated. Administrators unite. Yeah, are there any uh, A-type amens in the room? No, you would just sit up a little straighter and take a deep breath and have a smug look on your face. They administrate. They form a, they call a membership meeting. They form a special nominating committee. They find and vet seven able men full of good repute. They delegate then that responsibility to these leaders, servant leaders of other leaders, of other servants. And then they commission them to serve. And order is restored in the universe. And Robert would be proud. How many of you prefer order over chaos? Any hands? 
Some of you are nervous to even raise a hand in public. How many of you don't like raising hands in public? (laughs) Every once in a while, every once in a while, the youth pastor comes out. (laughs) Those that prefer order over chaos are godly. Now, how many of you prefer order over chaos? God is a God of order. Comfortable in chaos is something different. Worshiping order is still a sin. Preferring order over chaos, just, I mean, from the macro to the micro, the distance this planet is from this ball of fire is the only reason we're living and breathing. The tilt, the axis, the way it spins, the time it takes to revolve around that ball of fire. This other rock that is a certain distance from this this one we are seated upon also spins around this rock and moves water and sets into motion a system of self-watering for growth on on this planet. From the macro down to the micro, from the food chain order that allows us to still live and eat to our very organs and systems within us that work in coordination most of the time to the micro of a heartbeat that works in accordance with a perfect rhythm that if it's a fraction off causes serious problems. And we could even go further into the micro, and that would be way over my pay grade. But from the macro to the micro, God is a God of order. And so preferring order is imago Dei. How many of you can actually bring order out of chaos? That is a gifting. That is a supernatural, spiritual gifting. Paul calls it the gift of administration, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we clearly see the Spirit giving this gift at this time for the church. In fact, the Spirit is at work in this whole administration process, from the administration gift to the gift of leadership, to the gifts of service, of helps, and of mercy, just listing some that Paul will later list. It's certainly not the only way the Spirit is at work. He's filling them with His presence He's filling these men with wisdom in order to serve. And above all, probably, the work of the Spirit that we see in this passage, the unity that came from, I wouldn't necessarily say chaos, but certainly some tension and these complaints. Did you hear that that phrase? They were all pleased. The whole church agreed and was pleased about something, that's supernatural. (laughs) The model that the church provides is significant, and we should look at it and receive it. That's what we're trying to do with Acts. But we also say we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who's continuing to lead, to govern, and to empower. And without Him, that gift simply will not work. We can do it on our own strength, or we can do it in His. I think this passage is so key, and it's enough that I want to preach on it some more next week, and so I plan to, Deo Valente. Um, it, It captures so many of our core convictions that I've already tried to articulate at the beginning part of this series. Healthy things grow and multiply. We continue to see that. We must rely on the Holy Spirit. We continue to see that. We need one another. All things by prayer. Knowing and living God's word is vital. We see that in the apostles saying, it's not that they were arrogant or prideful. All they've been doing is serving every need within the community to the best of their ability. At this point, they're saying, but we are being distracted from our primary calling and gifting, the ministry of the word and prayer. We must empower others to do this work. And this isn't a menial task. They find men who are have excellent reputation, are full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. 
This isn't just, hey, who's willing? Who can help out here? This, I mean, this is, this is a significant moment for the church and an empowering from these leaders because they're committed to the ministry of the word. Knowing and living God's word is vital. But probably above all is the title of this sermon. Each one is gifted to serve. What a picture we see for the body. Each one has a role to play. So some simple questions. What is service? I think we can get to that fairly quickly, but it's good to state. Why serve? Takes maybe a little bit more. What's our motivation? Where does it come from? How do you serve? Do you know your giftings, your spiritual giftings, and do you use them to serve others? That's a little bit of a bigger question, and I'm going to seek to answer it starting today and then also next week. What is service? Simple question, straightforward but significant questions. Here's what it's not. Sometimes we go from that angle. Here's what it doesn't look like. Service does not keep track of time. That would be a job. It doesn't keep track of money exchanged. That would be a loan. It doesn't keep track of energy. That would be a favor, maybe to be reciprocated. It's not manipulated or coerced or bartered for. That would be bribery. It's not motivated by guilt. That would be penance. It's not forced. That would be slavery. So if that's what it's not, maybe we can capture a brief definition. Service is selfless acts of love done willingly without recompense. So you A-types can scratch that down. The rest can just ponder. Service is selfless acts of love done willingly without recompense. So if that's what it is, and we stay there, it goes nowhere. Why serve? We need one another. We were created as a body, a family. The church is not a business. That's not the picture that we're given, though there's elements of order that we can borrow from the business world. Requirements that we are under as a nonprofit, all true. But the church is a family and a body. And just as this, how do, you, how do you treat when you gather to this place? We happen to have a building. The church needs no building. But this local body has one. Do you treat it like a home or a hotel? Very distinct difference. A hotel, you pay your money. You're in and out. Maybe you're just passing through. Because you've paid your money, you can leave it however you want. As messy as you want, someone else will clean up after you. Or do you treat it like a home that you may only live in for a time before you pass it on to another and both are benefited? How do you treat gathering into the community, whether like this or in other contexts? Are you a spectator or a participator? It's a very diff- different attitude and response to how we interact in so many other gathering places, maybe the vast majority of gathering places in our life and our community are for us, are for our entertainment or our pleasure, and we will pay almost anything for it. The church is nothing like that. We even talked about removing these pews Not because we can get more chairs in here, but because we could actually create an environment that doesn't all face forward like we're so used to in our gathering places in culture where we have paid and we cheer and then we walk out. We are here to engage as the body and everyone is gifted to serve and has a role to play. That's one of the reasons why serve. Another one, the church has such a big mission and vision that it takes everyone to accomplish it. And if we lose sight of the bigness of that mission, then it's easy to just sit and be a spectator. The bigness of the mission that Jesus captures in Matthew 28, 
Go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them everything that I've taught you. In Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses everywhere you go, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There is a big mission that none of us can accomplish alone and no local gathering can be alone. The vision, ultimately, probably the, the, best capture I, I, the best capture of the vision I see comes from Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's vision. And that's so much bigger than any of us could ever even imagine to get context around it. We sometimes struggle. So what's our part, both as a local church and then as an individual? The mission, as we said, is helping all people find new life in Jesus and grow to bear fruit for Him. So capturing some of that greenhouse. We don't need people to memorize a mission statement or a vision statement. It better be captured through Scripture. That would be better to memorize God's Word. But sometimes it gives some tangibleness to it, to it, to it for us to grasp onto. The vision we have is to see a hundredfold harvest Lord of the harvest, multiplying the work of the ministry of his word and of prayer and of service in and around this community, a hundredfold harvest in the next hundred years. Do we have a vision that is lengthy, that is beyond any one of us and maybe even beyond our children? We want to think that way, pray that way, prepare that way, but only God is going to multiply that. We have a vision and a mission bigger as the capital C global church and as a local church, and if we lose sight of that, then we only need a few to accomplish the daily rhythms of gatherings. Maybe more than a few, as I called out earlier. It takes quite a few. But there's room for you, there's space for you, if you are not using the gifts that God has given, as we have a mission and a vision much bigger than any of us. Third, church is like a body. That's the image we're given by Paul a couple different places. Going to Romans 12. And if each part doesn't work together, then there's dysfunction, not health. Then there's weakness, not strength. Then there's declining and decaying and sickness, not life and growth and reproduction. Romans 12, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, so let us use them. Each one gifted to serve. Gifted differently with different roles. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 11, God gave the apostles, this could be, depending on how you read it, it's either the he is either Jesus or God. You can go back and look and we can have a good discussion on that. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip all the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Paul is basically just describing what happened in Acts 6. The work of these few leaders gifted in these ways is to build up the whole church that all the saints that everyone gathered does The work of the ministry serves, finds their role, finds their place, finds their part, is blessing others and being blessed in the working with the Spirit for the ministry of building one another up. And these seven that are selected in Acts, they're servant leaders. They're perhaps the first deacons. They're called servants. The Greek word for deacon is deacon. So it's simply a a servant. And they're called that. but they're not really given a title here, but it may be the groundwork for what it looks like to have many working in accordance with their gifts and administrating a healthy, functioning, growing body. So the deacon ministry, the diaconate, is, uh, is essential as we see it in Scripture. It doesn't really matter what their title is, but their function and their role working together with these other leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, Pastor, shepherds, it's interesting that Paul calls those both gifts and the people themselves gifts to the church. But even then, these, these leaders and these deacons are just a few of what it takes. 
I mean, imagine this ministry. These seven were, were, were now leaders of teams, basically, because there was so much need. They needed to account for the money. So there's counters, just as we have after church, both tabulating and accounting for accountability. But there's work to be done. There's many who needed to give generously to engage in the work. It's the whole body at play. There's those that would have gone into the marketplaces to buy the food, to secure it, to somehow transport it to a a place that it could be distributed and packed. Every day at work, this is like all hands on deck to minister to those in need in their community. And think about the various gifts of helps and service because widow, these widows, and certainly this ministry of mercy extended beyond just, just the widows, that's who's focused here, but to the other in need in the community, maybe the immigrants, the orphans, the fatherless, the marginalized, the disabled, and certainly their ministry extended. But the gifts of helps and service, because it wasn't just food that they needed. I mean, who was going to fix the leaky faucets and the IT problems of first century Palestine? So it took everyone, all hands, the body being the body, each one gifted to serve, and not all are gifted to the, the same, but all needed to fulfill the work. I'm just going to call out, Paul lists a number of spiritual gifts. I, I hope you know where to find them. If not, jot this down. Romans 12, we're not going to go through this today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, easy, it's the same chapter number, just two different books. And then the five that I mentioned in Ephesians 4. And then Peter, who's administrating kind of this whole thing here in Acts 6. Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, basically categorizes the gifts of speaking and then the gifts of service. And none of those lists are meant to be an exhaustive list, as if the Spirit is limited to a few things. But they are a great picture of if they were all working together within a body, the vitality and strength of the body. Next week, as we will hint at those, and maybe I'll go through, I haven't finished writing that sermon yet, I want to be able to encourage you how to discover your gifts, how to know them and put them into play. Because I think that's a missing piece often. We just struggle. I I want to serve, what do I do? Do I just do anything? We'll talk about that. Why serve? We're still camping here because... Up to this point, it's now an intellectual thing. Maybe, it's, maybe we understand the picture a little bit more, and maybe it's starting to translate to our heart. I, I, I want to I be involved. I want to do my part. I don't want to let the, the team down. But none of those are the primary motivation that we have. It goes deeper. Not just that we can do more together. We, we need one another. We need the bo- to be the body to be healthy. We need the family, the whole family at the table. But beyond this, why do we serve? We're commanded to serve. Now we can come to commandment and conviction. I'll use some P words, which will make more sense as I continue the sermon next week. Prescription and passion. Acts 6 is a description. We've been using those words a lot through this series. It's describing what happened, not what always will happen. Their issue ultimately is not our issue today. It's a very different culture and system that we live in. But the need can be translated, and the service must be. Acts 6 is a description, but throughout Scripture, we see prescription for serving others especially those in need. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? How do you do that? There was a tabernacle and later a temple. But that's ultimately not where this passage goes. How do you serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Verse 18, 
God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. This is God's heart and God's ministry. So you too love the sojourner. Remember, you too are sojourners in the land of Egypt. And ultimately, including all of this ministry, those in need, those marginalized, those traveling, those immigrants, the widows, the fatherless, this is on the heart of God. We are prescribed to join Him. We are commanded by His Word to be His servants. Going to the New Testament, James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I preached through this years ago. I think I stand by it. So without digging in to that, because there's some controversy there, faith and works, but faith works. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you just says to him, well, go in peace, be, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Faith works. We're, we're commanded to live out our faith. Commanded to serve, faith into action for the poor, the needy, the outcast, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. God's word prescribes us, in addition to just these, to love and serve spouse, our children, our extended family, our church, our neighbors, our leaders, all leaders, not just within the church, and even our enemies. We are commanded, prescribed again and again to serve in love basically everyone we might come in contact with in the various fields that we are planted in. And here's 1 Peter 4.10 that I hinted at earlier, Peter's famous words. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each one gifted, not all the same, use it to serve one another. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, the very words of God. Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, that's basically two categories of all service. It's not to be a list there. But however, the body works and serves, it's so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting because it's likely Peter who is administrating in Acts 6, equipping and empowering these servant leaders, modeling what it looks like, right? Not making excuses, not ignoring, not bringing guilt heavy on the church, not working harder themselves, but empowering the body that they would remain devoted to the ministry of prayer and the word. So we have a whole lot of prescription. And now we could just be responding in guilt if we stop there. Not my intention. I want it to lead to conviction. P word, passion. Are we meant to simply obey God's word and serve others even when we don't feel like it? Yes. Love is not an emotion. It's a decision. In addition, God's word doesn't leave us there. It goes so much deeper. And the ability to serve others once we recognize how we have been served can make it a whole lot easier. Passion, when passion grows to both see the hurting and needy and then the equipping to be able to care for those needs, whether it's God's provisioning for us to be able to care directly or whether it's equipping in his word, now to be able to do something about it can grow in passion instead of remaining in simply prescription. Well, I must, I see this one in need and I can do something, so I just will. When we start to realize what has been done for us, and this is where the word passion literally comes from, right? It's from the Latin for suffering. The passion of the Christ was his suffering. What was Christ's ultimate suffering? Certainly in body, he suffered, and that's often where it stops. The description of his passion is from being falsely arrested, accused, 
flogged, beaten, and led to the cross. That's his passion. But his passion, his suffering, was truly for lost people. That lost people, that the lost sheep of Israel would be reconciled to God the Father. That was his suffering. It led to his physical suffering. But his suffering was for the lost, the sojourner, the wandering, the needy, the fatherless, the widow. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. His suffering for those not reconciled to God, those not knowing God the Father, led Him to give His life away. He came to serve, not to be served. Though He is the one that deserves the greatest service as the King and Creator of the world, He's the one who has come to serve. Once we start to see Jesus, maybe we can begin to see our passion grow too. The way he has served us. The ability that we have commissioned to serve others. His incarnation and the crucifixion are the greatest examples of his service. And yet for us, that's like intangible. We're just trying to get our brain around both of those things. The God of this universe came into the womb of a teenage virgin. Okay, we've heard it enough times, maybe it works, but do we translate that? How do we incarnationally love in the same way? The crucifixion. Oh yeah, take up your cross daily. Daily, that means we're not going to the cross. It means how do we personalize that? What does that look like to serve, to lay down our life for those that are not reconciled to God. How do we do that? Probably the most tangible picture of Christ's service in Scripture is John 13. And I've preached through this a number of times. So to highlight it, John 13, verse 3, the night before he's arrested, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from the supper, the supper that we're about to share together and Just over a week's time. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is probably a common picture, but I hope it is still powerful and gripping for us. The role of a servant or slave, it was the lowest task. No one else stepped up to do this work. And if we could understand at all a little bit of their feet situation with open-toed sandals in an arid-type land with no sanitation department on dirt streets that the animals roamed in, and these were men that walked everywhere hours a day in the heat of the sun, and they came into this meal... No wonder they sat reclining at the table with their feet behind them because you wanted those feet nowhere near the food. And while this is taking place, the creator of the world gets up because no one else was doing this task and takes takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel, gets the water, and starts to wash the feet of each one around the table. What an incredible picture of humble service for those he loved. What's probably the most, as equally amazing, is that who was at the table that night? All 12. He washed Judas's feet, knowing exactly what was to come. He shared the communion meal, the first one, with Judas too, knowing exactly where his heart stood against him. This incredible act of service And love is truly a picture for us. And if we're honest, we're more like Judas than we are the beloved John. And Jesus has washed our feet, everyone. In fact, he's continuing to do so because he came to serve, not to be served. That's truly 
incredible. It's truly the gospel. If we have been loved and served like this, how would we not love and serve others? Jesus said, if then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, verse 14, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. We should translate that to our culture. It doesn't mean foot washing couldn't be, and I believe is a significant honoring kind of service and ministry, but it's a different context. Where's the hardest place to serve? Whose feet are the stinkiest? Air quotes. And how is God sending us to serve and love like him? What kind of acts of love and service because of what's been done for us that we can be we have been commissioned that we can serve in others that will speak for others that will speak far more powerfully probably than any words we could ever say. How do we do that? If we understand what's been done for us, we don't really need to follow a prescription to serve. They serve as good reminders. But we follow the passion. Our suffering grows as we see those unreconciled to God, the rebels that we once were, the uncleansed that could be cleansed by Jesus. As our passion grows and we start to serve like that, we also serve Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 34, getting close to the end here. Then the king will say to those on his right, this is a future end times picture, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. This is Jesus speaking, Jesus the king. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He's speaking to all believers for all time. That's the picture. And they respond to him, when did we do those things? Only a few in the history of the world actually did those things. When did we do these things? And he finishes with verse 40. The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it for me. As we serve the least, maybe the last, maybe the lost, as we all have been, we serve Jesus, our King. As you do it for these, you're doing it for me. It's the closest we'll ever get to being able to wash his feet. If he was here, if we could even pick ourselves up off the floor, if he would allow us to sit at his feet, to wash his feet, I think every one of us would flock to that opportunity. And yet as we walk out these doors today, we have that opportunity. And for most of us, we'll never wrap a towel around our waist. Our service is not because another is worthy. He washed the feet of Judas. Our service is because he alone is worthy. And we can become like him. We can minister his love to others. And ultimately, we serve him also. The how do we serve The what are your gifts? Through prayer, through practice, through perception. That's next week. Who is Jesus asking you to serve this week? Let me rephrase it. Who is he asking you to see? Who in our community, in your fields, do you not even see? Can't really answer that question. Start praying that prayer. God, who don't I even see? Who are the marginalized? Who are the outcasts? Who are the discriminated against? Who are the hurting? Where are the widows? The fatherless? Who do I not even see? Help me to see them. How can you visit them 
and welcome them this week. God may prompt you to do more, to wash feet, to care for needs, to bring some form of clothing. All of those might need to be translated to the need at hand. But I believe simply being present with the hurting and the loss and saying, I see you, can be one of the most powerful acts of mercy and service that we the body can do. Who is he asking you to see this week that you might be able to also serve this week? Invite the team to come and lead us into a response, giving us room to engage with God's word. As we respond, let us bring all of us in worship to the king who saves and serves. Let us give generously and sacrificially because the work is big and the need is great and we partner with him in one way by also giving generously as we come to the table and there's tables in the back too as we come to the table i want us all to remember do this in remembrance remember that jesus has served us this meal and at that same meal he washes our feet We have been cleansed from more than stinky feet. We've been cleansed from the unrighteousness and the stain of sin by the shedding of His blood. Remember that. And here's what I want you to know as you come to this table. He is continuing to serve you and wash your feet in order that you would be commissioned to go and be His hands, His feet, His mouthpiece, and His very presence in the midst of the least, the lost, and the last in the fields that we're planted in. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is true. Your Word is powerful. Your Word stands forever. We thank You that it continues to teach, instruct, even rebuke and correct, convict, I pray that what grows within this body is not just a response to the prescription of your word to serve, to love, to bless, but I pray what grows is the very same heart and passion and compassion that Jesus, you have and showed. Grow that within us, Lord. You have served us. And continue to serve us in ways we are so unworthy of, but we receive your love. Now, motivate us. Turn our attention to the last, the least, and the lost. Help us to see them as you see them, your sons and daughters. And if you don't give us words to say or an ability to minister, show us how to simply be present and extend your love and your grace for your glory and for our joy. Amen.